Yo, 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 welcome to another episode of House to House. It's your boy, Kyler, and always across me we have Peter. Hello. Hey, Peter. So today I'm, well, today I'm not going to ask you how you're doing. Actually, I'm going to ask you a different question because, you know, given that both of us are pretty hardcore Marvel fans Mm. and, you know, with the release of Disney Plus, it's quite, I would think it's quite anticipated for the both of us. Yes, it is. So today, what I'm gonna ask you instead is, give me one show you are most excited about to watch. It could have been released already, or it could have been it could be released in the future. Mm. Just that one show. So, anyone that knows me knows that I've been a Captain America fan for the longest time, mm. and I'm gonna spend the next six minutes. So <laughs> maybe skip <laughs> skip ahead if you're not interested in my Marvel. Geekiness, but uh, seriously, so so I've been a Captain America fan since nineteen ninety five, which yep. is probably just soon after you were born. Knowing you, how old were you then? <laughs> so so I I was thirteen. Okay, yeah, yes, that's a reasonable age too. Yeah, so I, I just had enough money, uh, in my enough allowance to buy comics on a weekly basis, right. and I bought a Captain America comic every month. Without fail for the next twelve years. Was it released every month, like a new? Yeah, yeah. Okay. As in Mar- Marvel was quite consistent with their back then. Uh, even now, is it? Even now, okay. Yeah. As in one of the things that that Marvel's been great for is its consistent releases. Right. Um, sadly, like quality of the artwork fails <laughs> as a result because they tend to only hire fast artists, not good artists. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, so I I collected Captain America comics for yeah. Religiously for like over 12 years In fact more than that Anyway um, But yes so obviously the one thing I'm really looking forward to in this On Disney Plus Is uh, The Winter Soldier and the Falcon It features two of my favourite characters Two of my favourite Captain America supporting cast Yeah, Finally getting you know The chance they deserve to star in their own show Right because most of the spotlight has been on you know, Captain America himself. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. for the past decade since his movie was released in mm. 2011. Yeah. I see. So that's the one show you are... That's the one show I'm definitely looking forward to. I mean, the trailers look great. They they finally rehabilitated uh, Baron Zemo. So he's finally getting his comic book mask in the show and I, I'm, I just can't wait. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's good to hear. What about you, Kyler? What are you looking forward to the most? Um... Well, for me, because I like I'm that kind of person where I think a lot and I think of like different possibilities. Mm. So I think that the one show that I'm most excited about is the What If series. Ah. Where I mean, you should know, but maybe mm. p- listeners who wouldn't know, it's like they showcase episodes of different possibilities of what our you know our favorite characters, our favorite Marvel characters, like the different routes that they might have. Taken, you right. know, the different alternate realities that they might live in, and those kind of scenarios that I think it's very fun. And you know, true to its name, you know, what if, you know, what if this happens and this happens, how will that affect everything? Right. So yeah, that's the 
that's what I'm most excited about. So Kyla, if you could write any what if episode, what storyline would you write? Ooh. Um Okay, so the thing is for me, I didn't grow up with the Avengers, you know, the the very well known characters that we know from the MCU. What I grew up with was the X Men. Of course. You know, like that any anim- good nineties kid. Yeah. That animated series on Cartoon Network, games that I've played on my PS2. Well, you know, a lot of that surrounded the X Men. And I think, you know, given that Disney has bought Fox recently, right? Right. And it's it will come sooner rather than later where this epic, massive collaboration and crossover comes where, you know, the X-Men and the Avengers work together to defeat, I don't know, like Galactus or Sentinels or whoever. I think what I would really like a What If episode to be is that it can even just be... Okay, so let's say they focus on a Marvel character, Iron Man, for example. What I would really like is that it could even just be a cameo of the X-Men or even mutants, you know, in the background somewhere. Like Iron Man could be in New York walking, you know. He might be sitting in that giant donut for all we care. And then we see like maybe Angel flying past right. or the X-Jet, for example. I think that sort of little cameos will make fans go well because like, you know, sometimes I watch YouTube channels who cover this Marvel, like Easter eggs, those breakdowns and mm-hmm. everything. And I can already foresee that they are going to go ham over this one shot of um that crossover. Right. So, yeah. What so, if Disney had bought over Fox in two thousand and eight? Mm-hmm. So so like 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 we we'll, we'll edit all the all these cameos into the original MCU movies. Oh damn. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Oh Okay, that's yeah. okay, that's that's a way better idea than what I had. <laughs> oh damn. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like what? Um Deadpool did at the right. at the end credits of his movie, yeah. right? It was just basically um, Fox characters in the MCU now. Damn, that's a really good idea. I like that actually. I'm gonna edit this <laughs> to me saying that instead. <laughs> 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 All right, listeners, keep sending in those questions. We've gotten a couple of questions, so thank you for those who have sent in. Once again, email us at podcast at mortgagemaster.com.sg. These questions will all be answered in the open house episode. Now on to today's topic. So there have been a lot of articles covering prices Mm. for public housing and how they have skyrocketed to the point of, quotation marks, being too high. And... You know, I have friends um, who have also brought this up where they complain that hey, Singapore's housing very expensive and then, you know, talks about migrating to somewhere else. That's where it rises. And while this may all be an issue of affordability, mm-hmm. you know, objectively looking at the prices of these houses, has it gone too high? I think that's the question we are answering today. So, firstly, what is too high? I think... Too high is quite subjective. But what often makes the headlines are HDB units going past that, you know, that $1 million mark. You know, that's the criteria to hit. And for me, I think there's a reason for it to make the headlines because firstly, maybe before 2008 and maybe even as recent as 2015, 2016, there haven't been a lot of public houses that have broken that $1 million mark. Mm -hmm. And... Recently, only more recently, we've started to see more and more units um, reaching that 
reaching that requirement and that criteria. But I've I've did some research and it turns out that a lot of these units they have broken that one million dollar mark are DBSS units, which are HDB units that are designed by private contractors. So right. maybe more atas looking, you know, not it it stands out from our typical HDB flats. Mm. Secondly, um, maisonettes, basically your double story houses, and I've always thought it was pronounced as mansionettes actually. And lastly, maybe towards the more obscure side, HDB terrace flats, where it's um, it's it's like it looks like a terrace flat, but it's just actually owned by the HDB, and mm-hmm. these houses are actually considered one of the oldest houses in Singapore. Right. Yeah. So, I think what makes the headlines is because nowadays there are more HDB units instead of this you know dbss maisonettes terrace flats those atypical housing units right. and now that there are more common flats come breaking that one million dollar mark that's why it's making headlines also secondly home sellers that who are making the news the profit is usually very high yeah. and you know that could be one of the reasons why they got featured because most of these homeowners when they bought their houses they started as BTOs which are you know below market prices and now when they sell it above 1 million they are making like 400k 600k profit and with the highest reportedly having an 800k profit from a unit at you know Pinnacle at Duxton of course and I can really tell that there are some listeners who are who have just listened to what I said who are scoffing at what public housing units have become like how can public housing units reach that high? Like, how is it so expensive now? So before we go any further, I what I want to ask is, what really is too high? All right. So Peter, for you, what will be the highest that you'll pay for a public house in Singapore? So, so growing up, I I kind of had the idea that, you know, if you had a million dollars or if a property cost a million dollars, it had to be a landed property. Right. You know, like a terrace house, like a corner terrace house. Um you don't think of public housing as costing a million dollars. Like if if you could afford a million dollar property, you, you should be thinking of landed property just yet. So I would personally think no higher than six or seven hundred K right now. For a HDB flat right now. Mm-hmm. Um I know that's a bit of a you know, like it's it's neither here nor there. Like it's it still seems like like no one's gonna balk at a six hundred to seven hundred K price tag. On, on a HDB flat But I think that's as high As it should go I mean At the end of the day This is public housing It shouldn't cost You know A six figure sum A, right. a seven figure sum hmm. Sorry Yeah Okay What about you Kyla What do you think You What's the highest You want to pay For a HDB flat mm, I think Like what you said Because you know You grew up with that um, That thinking that When a house is One million dollars At least It should be a terrace house Right. But for me, it's different because maybe I grew up in that era where one million dollar houses are condos. Right. As I would think that, you know, the next generation after me would think that, oh, HDB, one million dollar, mm, quite quite common, you know. Mm. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or bad thing that prices are skewed, like heading towards that direction. But I think what the highest I'll pay would probably be, I think somewhere in your range as well, 600, 700k. Like for me... Um, it it's not really about the, you know, the price tag that we put on the house. Right. Like what I really want is just a home mm-hmm. that I can call a home. I think that's what more. That's why it's more important to me at least. So, even if it's like maybe even lower, maybe four hundred, five hundred k, that I don't mind spending. Like okay, this is the max I'll afford. Right. So, yeah, somewhere in that range. I don't think I'll ever 
you know, fork out one million dollar just to get a unit. But that's that's just for me, you know. Yeah, but I think this brings in the important important question of, is it really too high? Mm. Because you know, like what we've mentioned, there are like the max will offer for a HDB unit is starting from me 400k to your 700k right. so there are units that are below that 1 million dollar yeah. and basically not every HDB unit costs 1 million dollars you know certain factors allow certain units to be able to cross that million dollar mark and we'll definitely get into more of these factors later but now that we've addressed what is too high for us at least we need to ask is it really too high I mean sure there's been a steady increase of units crossing this $1 million mark, and which again, you know, may be considered too high for a lot of people. So in 2018, there were 71 units right. that were sold above $1 million mark. And these were HDB units, by the way. In 2019, it took a slight dip to 64. And in 2020, just last year, it reached 82 units. And mind you, this, you know, 2020 was in a pandemic and a recession and everything. And yet, it beat the previous year number of $1 million resale units sold. Right. So, I mean, I, I think there are many factors to why this has happened. I mean, the, the most obvious one, I think, is the existence of Pinnacle at Duxton. Mm, I mean, yeah. that's the one project that really uh, feels like the exception to the rule. Um, to begin with, it was, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that Pinnacle at Duxton is technically a HGB BTO. Yeah. When you think about it, it's surreal because no other BTO, I suspect, will ever come to that level of glamour. Wait for the GSW. No? Oh, that, no, <laughs> which we'll talk about, I think, maybe near the end of the episode. Uh, but yeah, the, the idea that, that here's a, you know, a BTO in the middle of the town, or at least very close to town, like it's in Cantonment Road, that's like just 10 minutes away from Tanjung Paga, from Raffles Place, from City Hall. And, you know, it looks great. Like, it looks like, it looks better than some condos, mm. you know. And it's one of the tallest buildings ever, which means that you've got a great view of, you know, yeah. the, the city center. And yeah, so anecdotally, the story I've heard is that when MOP happened five mm. years in, like, a whole bunch of uh, property agents with really, you know, good business acumen went to every unit to literally ask them, hey, you know, you can MOP now. Are you willing to sell? And then they they wow. literally marked up the price. So they were the ones that set that. Oh, it was the agents that. I mean, I said anecdotally. I yeah, mean, yeah. There's, there's no there's no way to prove this. Otherwise, right. I'm, I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure that there were many homeowners themselves who were willing to, who were ready to sell. Like that should have been the minimum, you know? right? Yeah. But when you think about how much they bought it for, yeah, you would never have suspected that they would be willing to mark up. To, to that, that level, mm-hmm. I I so that's why I suspect it was agents with really good um, ideas of of how, how much the property value of the surrounding areas are, right? Which okay. were which were like you're sitting on a gold mine here, and and let me tell you how much that gold mine is actually worth. Yeah, and people were willing to sell it at a million dollars, and that went from being like a shock to the norm. I mean, like. Whenever you sell a pinnacle unit nowadays, I'd be I'd be surprised if you weren't trying to sell it for a million <laughs> to start with. You know, at yeah. least as your starting, yeah. you know, your starting offer. So, so yeah. So I th- I think pinnacle really 
I feel was the start of this whole hey, HDBs can actually sell I see. for a million dollars. But now it seems that, like you're saying, that there are many other factors. That, mm. that Pinnacle is not just the exception to the rule, but may have just been the start of a trend. Yeah. Because I think we're seeing these $1 million flats show up all over the island. Mm. Or at least, okay, la, not all over the island, la, but, oh. but there are some neighborhoods with a higher uh, propensity to be million dollar flats. Yeah, for sure. I, I think what you said, because like the stats that I pulled off HGB's website, right. um, just last year in 2020, there were 14 units that sold over $1 million in the central area, mm-hmm. like the central district, right? And all 14 of them were from Pinnacle at Duxton. Right. So I think it just goes to show like what you have said. It's, it's evidence that, you know, agents are probably going to different houses or even homeowners just saying that, you know what, let's start at $1 million. Anything below that, let's not even go into further discussion. Right, kind I of mean, thing. if yeah. people are willing to pay a million for your unit, mm. you know, why why undervalue your property? Yeah. Right. So, that's the thing. So when, we, when we come to the question of, is it really too high? Right. You know, we've talked about Pinnacle at Duxton, like this anomaly, that this block of units have even, have that sort of privilege that, hey, anything below one million, let's not even go there. We start from anything above one million. And I think to me, like, maybe I'm coming in with a more philosophical viewpoint. If you think a unit is too high, like the price of it is too high, it's subjective, of course. But if you think it is too high, don't chase that unit. What I feel is that once you've sort of shut yourself away from that, you'll filter out those houses and you won't feel like prices of housing is too high anymore. Think about it, like, for me, I know I probably won't ever get Pinnacle at Duxton. Right. So, in my head, that is out of the picture. And I know that there are other houses that I can afford. So, if you ask me that, is pricing really too high? I'll say no, because there are houses that are, you know, not $1 million. And I can get those houses. And that's the thing. Well, apologies, because I can already sense a monologue coming up. But people don't have to buy a $1 million house. If you don't want to BTO, or rather, if you maybe if you can't even BTO, which you know BTOs are government subsidized, there are literally tons of cheaper resale flats, right? Like way below that one million dollar price tag. And personally, I feel it's that mindset that most Singaporeans grew up with, that you know we've always got to be the best, and this competitive nature that's already instilled in us since we were young. And I'm I'm not saying that mentality is a bad thing. I'm just saying that I feel that this mindset is the cause of this whole debacle that when people are unable to obtain that, you know, quotation marks, best house or that top tier house, they sort of die a little inside. Like, you know, where they think like, oh, like I couldn't make it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't obtain that house. And then this leads to, you know, them voicing out that these units were too high in the first place. You know, right. sort of that, um, what do you call it? that defense mechanism. But at least to me, just be okay with settling for less. You know, you don't always have to get that $1 million house. Like, do you really need a five-room flat? Do you really need a house in the prime location? Like, if you suppress this mindset and, you know, probably that status that we are chasing after, and instead go for units that 
you can afford. And you know, if you're, if you're untoo sure about it, set up a consultation with one of our mortgage brokers. Like, that's our jobs. The entire session and advice is free. But a five-room or a price to this unit doesn't make a unit a home, to right. me at least. What makes it a home are, you know, those, those little anecdotes of our personalities that we, sp- that we sprinkle all over our home you know, also known as designing or renovating. And organic, humanly emotions and behavior that makes it a home. And to me, that's what makes a home priceless. Right. No, but that's just, that's just my thoughts on whether, you know, housing is really too high. I feel that if you can just shut off certain units that you feel is too high and just look at other, ho- other units that are more in your realm, maybe you might feel that housing really isn't too high after all. Yeah, so I, I guess I guess this comes back to um, like earlier discussions and I'm sure future discussions on on whether BTOs should be should be seen as investment mm. properties because I mean philosophically, as you would say, um, yeah, I mean you want to make your house your home, so you want to you know design it in such a way that it reflects your personality you know, your goals, you want it to be a, a place where your children can grow up. I mean, if you want to follow that Singaporean uh, dream, inverted commas. Um, but, but the idea is that not everyone, not everyone sees BTOs as that anymore. Mm. Like, like now we're seeing a rise of perhaps people who are, who are thinking of, you know, I mean, you, you said in your own articles, like with the MOP in mind. So, so they only plan to, to get the unit for five years and then they're ready to make uh, a tidy profit out of it. Yeah. Because, I mean, our, our, CEO, our CEO, David, also points out technically the profit's not just, you know, like 200 times or 300 times. Like if you BTO at, at 300,000 and then you get to sell it at 600 or, or 900,000. It's actually more than that because you've actually not put up any money like like you've it's not as if you had two hundred thousand in your bank and then you bought the home and then you sold it. Mm. So your profit margin is actually in terms of how much you've actually used, which in most cases, especially if you take a, a bank loan or a HDB loan, might not even be any cash out of your pocket. Right. You know, it might be pure yeah. CPF deduction. Um or even if you took a bank loan and it was cash out of your pocket, it's only what ten percent mm. of the purchase price, and then you sell it for you know, like a two hundred k profit. So say if your purchase price ten percent of your purchase price is twenty k, yeah, and then you sell it for two hundred k profit, that's actually ten times the mm. profit, eight, eight to ten times the profit. So so yeah, so many people obviously see the value of selling their BTOs as soon as they can, mm. and this is you know, uh, something that we need to start addressing. And I think nowadays we call it the, you know, the lottery effect. Right. Like, like you mentioned, the Greater Southern Waterfront. Um, that, that could very well be the next pinnacle simply because of its location, of its value, of yeah. its amenities. And That's like the next $24 million total, right? Yeah, For housing. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like we, we can already see that whoever gets to ballot for that, you know, for those flats, assuming no other restrictions show up based on today's <laughs> restrictions. Um, it's immediately going to be a winner at least five years on when they have the ability to sell their flat unless restrictions come in and they can't sell their flat after five years. Yeah. Just saying. But that's in like, because we don't know how 
these policies might have changed when you know the GSW comes out in like 2030, 2040 right. and there's still quite some time to that and you know there are already talks about like cooling off measures mm-hmm. and certain uh, policies that may be implemented this year itself yep. so you know we, we can't exactly foresee how things might change to, to sort of dampen that lottery effect mm-hmm. in the future but yeah I think what you brought up is was very interesting you know yeah, this lottery effect and using the example of GSW um, I think it comes back to you know the question of are prices really too high so w- what you're saying is that you feel that prices will be too high so so okay I mean there, there are two ways to look at it right like one is obviously from um, someone who applies for a BTO and then plans to sell it in five years for a, mm. t- for a healthy profit yeah the other is are the people who buy these HDBs like what is their mindset you know like if I spend a million dollars to get Pinnacle at Duxton for example a unit okay am I planning to stay there for the rest of my life mm. or am I planning to also hopefully get a profit down the road yeah because it's one thing to to you know buy us a, a unit at a subsidized price and then sell it at a healthy profit it's another thing to buy it at a million dollars yeah and then try to sell it for a healthy profit because like how much higher can it go and how much higher do you need it to go before you're willing to to sell off and for you to consider that okay this is a healthy profit yeah. and, mm-hmm. and if you can't find that higher price then you become the last owner of this unit right and and that's that's something that I think more people need to consider because I mean, how many buyers can there really be? As, uh, I think um, like you mentioned that there were over 80 units being sold for a million dollars last year. That's ultimately still very much the minority. It is, it is. Actually. Yeah. And I think this is the perfect transition to really sort of go deeper into analyzing what makes this, what are the factors that makes these 82 units of last year, you know, reach that $1 million mark? So I think the number one most obvious choice or the number one most obvious thing that comes to mind is location. You know, and location can be further subdivided into how close it is to the central of Singapore, whether it's a mature or non-mature estate. Because there was a report, according to the Business Times, that um, the Pinnacle at Duxton set the record last November at 1,248,000. Wow. So, and Pinnacle at Duxton is in the central area. Yep. However, on the flip side, a DBSS unit in Haugang sold for 810k. Mm. You know, I mean, comparing to the 1.2 million, it's definitely a dip, but Haugang, this unit was the highest resale price in a non-mature estate. Right. And I mean, 800k is still no small feat. So I think when it comes to location, you can definitely see the difference uh, and how it factors into the different prices of units being sold. Right. Yeah. This brings us to the next point of transport and amenities as well. Mm. How convenient and how sort of how well developed your environment is, that vicinity is. Because, you know, transport and travel is definitely a factor for most people or most adults, you know, when they have to travel for work and stuff. But whether your house is close to an MRT, whether your house is close to a school, this also affects how, you know, how high the price of a unit can really go to. The next thing is the number of years left on the lease. Yep. So from the 82 units that crossed that $1 million mark in 2020, most of these units, um, according to HGB's website, right. 
were left with at least 89 years of lease. Which would be around the time, which would be pinnacle. Yeah, it's it's a very healthy number, basically, the 89 years. The one exception was a Geylang Maisonette with 62 years left. Wow. So I think that, I mean, 62 years compared to 89 years, that really stands out. And I think it still goes to show that um, this is definitely not the only factor, you know, the numbers the number of years left on the lease. Right. Uh, but but it does seem to imply that, that it's a trend mm. um, to look at, at new BTOs as potential investment yeah. property because 89 years implies, I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, that's that's literally where when Pinnacle's lease began. So, mm. so it's been 10 years since Pinnacle's lease began. So obviously, when you say less than 89, you're including all the Pinnacle yeah. uh, transactions, but also a lot of new um, BTO projects that are going to MOP soon or have already MOP mm. would probably f- fall under these, this range of within the first 10 years of the lease. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And another thing is that, you know, not just most of these units were left with 89 years. Mm. It's also that the flat sizes right. of these units were all five room DBSS units or executive uh, flats. Right. So, I, I mean, it really goes to show that basically these three types of housing were the biggest and towards the more elegant side, like nicely designed kind of flats. That, and it's also a reminder that price, you don't just look at the price of a flat, you look at, you know, the per square foot yeah. of, of, uh, of any property. Like, don't just bulk at a price tag if you are not seeing how big the unit is. Mm. I mean, the Pinnacle at Duxton units are relatively bigger than most BTO units mm. today. So so it's no wonder that they are able to sell for more. But when you really look at the per square foot, three, if that three-room flat or four-room flat that you bought for 600 or 700k mm. had been a five-room flat, it would probably have been right. a million dollars. But because it was just a three-room flat, it would never command a million that, dollars yeah. because no one's going to pay that much per square foot. Okay, Yeah, got it. And lastly, the... The last factor, to me, it's arguably the most important. Yes. Is which floor the unit is on. So I've never really considered that um, it could play that much of a difference. Oh, yeah. I mean, I stay in a, like a 12, 13 story standard HDB. So thinking about a unit that goes up to like 30 plus, 40 plus right. stories, that is wild to me, I think. But apparently that, you know, the altitude of a 30 plus, 40 plus story unit offers that unobstructed views and those unobstructed views is what gets you that cash. Because people have reported that because they stay at that height and maybe in certain cases, because it's in a more central location, it's actually become a regular occurrence for them to see fireworks during like National Day, during New Year's, just because they are that high and just of their view like mm. how much they can see so that has become a part of their lifestyle right you know getting that you know you get you're seeing you know that okay no matter what every national day i'll be able to see fireworks that kind of thing you know right. i think there was a report saying that um you know all of the units sold above the 40th floor 73 percent of them hit the one million dollar mark wow as compared to all of the units sold between the 30th and 39th floor only 37% of them hit that $1 million mark. Right. Very drastic difference just based on what story that unit is on. But I guess this also goes to show how unique 
uh, Pinnacle at Duxton is as a mm. property. Uh, it, it is really the first HDB, and I can't believe it's still a HDB, but <laughs> but it's the first HDB um, apartment to ever go that high. Yeah, you know, um, it still stands out. Like, like I've lived in a point block for most of my life, and I used to think that twenty five stories was incredible. Like. I mean, I can't believe like a 25-story apartment building could be built in the 70s, mm. you know. But now that there are, you know, units above 40 stories, it's, it, really, it really does boggle the mind um, how unique and how rare such things are. Okay, yeah. But, you know, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, this $1 million units and what are the factors that really go into making these units $1 million. But we want to reiterate that right. you know these units are outliers. It's a very, very small part, like what you said in the beginning of this podcast. It is a minority right. of the number of you know even HDB unit populations, yet alone transactions. That I and I believe that actually this one million dollar uh, unit transactions, they only account for zero point three percent of all HDB transactions. Right. So it's very very minute in that sense so yeah um analytical show i love it a lot of discussion um let's call it there guys email us your questions or if you agree or disagree whether public housing is too high send in those questions to podcast at mortgagemaster.com.sg all of this will go into the open house Follow us on Spotify, Apple, Google, Podcasts, whatever you're using to tune in to us. We release a new episode every single week. Thanks for joining us, folks. And remember, you don't need a 40-story unit to see fireworks. You want to see fireworks anytime? Just rub your eyes for 10 seconds and look up. See ya! Goodbye! Oh.